This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here are your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. Joined as always by my colleague, co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Bob, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Well, this week's show is a, a little bit of a departure. We decided for the first time to cover the issue of American demographics, namely the rapid and somewhat radical aging of American society, which poses a huge problem for economists, in my view anyway, who are ill-equipped to talk about this in any meaningful way, especially when they happen to be lulberts. Uh, there's an organization called the Population Reference Bureau that puts out a fact sheet, and by their estimation, by 2060, which is not that far off, folks, by 2060, the number of Americans over age 65 will have doubled. They'll go from about 50 million to 100 million, and they'll go from about 16% to about 23% of the population. So all this said, Bob brought to my attention earlier this week a New York Times article, which was about a kerfuffle pertaining to a professor of economics at Yale University named Professor Narita. He is Japanese. He has apparently a huge social media following and mostly covers Japanese demographics and the Japanese economy. I don't know why he doesn't do this at a Japanese university, why Yale has to employ this guy, but here we are. So anyway, Professor Narita apparently said that, uh, not tongue-in-cheek necessarily, that seppuku, which is the Japanese word for mass suicide, might be the answer to that tiny country's almost unbelievable uh, demographic cliff with aging people. So, you know, Bob, there's been a lot of talk about euthanasia in Canada. There's been a lot of talk about the graying of America and social security and entitlement. So I guess for starters, uh, where are you on this, on the, on the graying of the American population? Well, yeah, just to frame it and just give people some, because I, I mean, I'm sure that this was the same for you too, Jeff, um, we're similar in age. That, you know, growing up, there was always, oh, this ticking time bomb with the so-called, you know, unfunded entitlements. But, I mean, it's it's at the point now, um, the, the mismatch, in case the listeners don't know this, that it was back in 2008 uh, when, you know, with the financial crisis and the, the so-called Great Recession, that's when the the you know, workers' so-called contributions to Social Security, OASDI, that that was insufficient to cover the outgoing checks. And that's when that mismatch first happened. And then, um, you know, they talk about the so-called trust fund. And again, there's, there's problems with that. But even on its own terms, in terms of like the internal accounting, that that's going to run out for Social Security, like in the 2030s at this point, early 2030s. So, I mean, these things that when I was growing up were always some problem that was going to, you know, rear its head in 50 years. And, gee, maybe we should start doing something about that. But, you know, it was kind of, it's already upon us. And so th this is going forward going to be one of the things, especially as interest rates rise where it's going to become more apparent. So, yeah, I think that these issues that so far it's happening in Canada where there's this sort of trend that I think they floated a trial balloon and then backed off it when there was public outcry. But to say, well, hey, if the government's paying for all these medical expenses and there's people that can't be treated, whatever, you know, maybe if you just took your own life, wouldn't that be better for everyone? And this Japanese guy explicitly saying it in the case of Japan. And I went and looked. I don't know if you did this, Jeff. Um, to see the actual clip of when he did it on this show. And it was a bunch of young people, and I don't speak Japanese, but you know, he, he obviously said the line and everyone started like, oh, 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 and they were like laughing and kind of like shocked. But it was, it was very, you know, funny. Like, like, hey, that's really the only solution here. Am I right? 
And so I, I think that attitude is we're going to see it more and more here as this just becomes untenable. Like, how are we going to pay for all these people? And, gee, wouldn't it just instead of, you know, grandpa burning $600,000 worth of expenses on three years of life that really aren't very good for him anyway, wouldn't it just be better for everybody if he took the high road? Well, and to be fair, old people in Japan and old people in America are responsible in the sense that they didn't have enough kids. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of antinatalism in this country, uh, no question about it. But the idea that there's too many old people and not enough young people at some point has to be laid at the feet of, you know, of, uh, you know lifestyle choices. People, as societies get wealthier, people generally have fewer kids. That's just the way it is. Now, entitlements, of course, muddy this. About 15% of your paycheck, your, your half and your employer's half, which could otherwise be paid to you, goes out the door for Social Security and Medicare. So together, they, they are at least a third of the annual federal budget. And this is you know, an, an enormous transfer payment from younger people to older people. Uh, as you mentioned, the number of younger workers supporting each retiree has radically shifted since the 30s when Social Security was passed. But beyond that, it creates this um, you know, intergen- intergenerational strife which I think COVID only intensified because COVID is the first time where we, well, other than wars, I suppose, but, but the idea is that older people should sacrifice so that younger people can live, right? That's why we would, uh, um, you know, not, not take it, we'd take a kidney from a 40-year-old to save a 10-year-old, not the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with COVID, we effectively locked down the country, at least for a bit, to, 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 to protect old people from really a pretty small death rate and also an average age of 80 something dying from COVID. So that was obviously insane and wrong. And it created a lot. Uh, I, I think it spurred some, some more of this intergenerational strife. And of course, you know, older people, baby boomers in particular, have way more money uh, at this stage of their life. They have way more money at, at, in their 20s and 30s than their millennial or Generation Y cohorts have today. But you know, one a couple of things that go unstated about entitlements. One is that there's a lot of very ordinary older folks who get, you know, two grand a month in Social Security, and they, they have a net worth of $3 million. They may have a modest home, but they own it outright. They have a mo- modest automobile. They have some pension funds. They have some mutual funds. It's very common to have the, the quiet neighbor next door is worth two, three, four million dollars $4 and they're still getting that two grand a month. From younger people who are working and paying 15% of their paycheck to support this transfer program. Obviously crazy, obviously unsustainable. But more importantly, you know, we're a big far-flung country of 330 million people. We got a lot of immigrants now. Um, We're not uh, sociologically really culturally cohesive. There's a lot of division in this country. So you take, let's say, a recent immigrant from Central or South America or Mexico who's working his or her tail off at some hourly, fairly low-paying jobs, and this person's getting docked 15% of their pay so that some old, elderly, German, Lutheran, white woman in Minneapolis who's got $3 million net worth can have her two grand every month. Um, that, that doesn't sound like a recipe for social cohesion. Right, and, uh, be, and besides just the... In- Implicit or you know an unfairness of what you're saying right there. Also for the you know the current workers to know they're not going to get their promised benefits. Like everybody knows, the only way this is quote going to be fixed 
is if they raise, you know, like raise the retirement age, uh, increase mm-hmm. so-called workers and employer side contribution rates and cut benefits. And, and, and a lot of people talk about, well, maybe we should means test and whatnot, as you're, as you're saying. So everybody knows that this is the people that are right now 20 years old. They're not going to be getting the level of benefits that are promised to give us some idea. Again, in case people don't know how out of whack the system is right now, the government's own actuaries, uh, this figure was from like two years ago when I looked this up. So the, you know, I don't think it's moved much. If anything, it's probably gotten worse. That this over a seventy-five year horizon, if they just said, okay, under current you know contribution rates and current pro- projections and benefit schedules, there was a mismatch for Medicare and Social Security of I think it was like sixty-eight trillion dollars. The present discounted value of that. So th- that was just saying the mismatch, you know. So the, all, you know that keeps the current taxes in place, and it was just saying, in other words, they would need sixty-eight trillion right now to have invested rolling over to cover the gap between what those programs are going to owe recipients and what the new workers coming online are going to contribute into the pot. And so that just shows there's no way that's going to work. They're going to have to, you know, cut benefits and or increase the the contribution. So you're right. This is clearly unsustainable and something's going to give, and there's going to be a lot of resentment building. I mean, it's not even just on this thing too. Like I, when I was growing up, I remember they, uh, the, lo- the local so-called public schools, they were going to cut all the sports programs unless there was a big property tax hike. And all the old people showed up at the town hall meeting to complain. And there were all these like, you know, student athletes there started crying, yelling at them and, you know, call them all these names. And it was re- just clear how politics was pitting one group mm-hmm. against the other. Well, yeah, it dehumanizes us. There's no no question about it. But as a political matter, Going after Social Security or Medicare is just an absolute non-starter for a candidate at the, you know, at, at running for U.S. House, U.S. Senate, or, or national office. I mean, and and as for Medicare, you know, the the free office visits for seniors that the original Medicare uh, instituted in the 1960s, that's actually cost far less money than the free prescription drug prescription drugs that Medicare Part D passed in 2004. Instituted, so you know the pharmaceutical companies loved it. All of a sudden, you've mm. got millions of old people across the country taking ten pills a day, paid for by Uncle Sam. I mean, it's a well, be- wait, beautiful. But that's, that's impossible, Jeff, because weren't the Republicans totally in charge in two thousand four? So that, that no, there couldn't have been an expansion well, of the welfare it state. It was uh, yeah, it was George W. Bush. This was actually in '03 when it passed, and largely as a sop for seniors, so that he could beat John Kerry in that 2004 election. So that's W, the uh, president of Iraq, the Patriot Act, No Child Left Behind, Medicare Part D. Um, just unbelievable what a scammer that guy was. But, you know, the, one of the Lalbert reactions to all this is to say, well, you know, we got to import lots and lots and lots of migrants from all over the world. That's the only way we're going to be able to pay for entitlements. And whenever, whenever I hear this, you know, it's like, well, first of all, I don't want to do that. Um, but second of all, you know, any economy that requires a constant growth in population uh, would, would, would appear to be a, on some level a Ponzi scheme. Now, now, certainly you don't want to have the kind of demographics that Japan has. You certainly don't want America to become more abundant. We need young people. We need a higher birth rate. We need some dynamism in the economy, and that's generally people under 40, technical skills, etc. We need some degree of smart, capable immigrants. Uh, you know, we certainly don't need some of the immigrants we've got, but we need a, a degree of smart, capable immigrants, and we need, a, you know, a, a higher birth rate. That's all fine and dandy. Uh, but 
you know, what matters in a society is is not just GDP or income or uh, a more Rothbardian or Salernoite term of gross output. Mark Skousen talks about that as well. You know, something we would agree to that's more accurate than GDP. What matters is per capita, right? I mean, I- India produces a lot more economic wealth, a lot higher GDP than Liechtenstein but, and, or Switzerland, but no one would say India is richer than Liechtenstein or Switzerland. What matters is wealth per capita or income per capita. So yes, just mass immigration of low-skilled workers can absolutely raise the economic output of the United States and even to an extent the economic well-being, but that's different from, from saying that doesn't necessarily raise the per capita wealth of the United States, especially with that first generation or so of immigrants. So I think it's an easy cop-out to say, well, you know, we could solve all this if we just had a billion Americans, because then if we, if we continue without addressing the, the incredible uh, scourge of entitlements at, at their base level, at their root level, it's not government's job to provide health care. It's not government's job to provide for your retirement. Until we address that, you know, what is a billion going to become? Two billion? Five billion? I mean, um, you know, India and, and China both have a population over a billion but we wouldn't say they're wealthier than us. Right. And also, to, I mean, you kind of just alluded to it yourself, too, Jeff, that my, my problem with that solution, you know, regardless of what one thinks proper immigration policy should be or even using that term policy, but just bringing a bunch of people over at best, that kicks the can down the road. And then you're going to have that problem in the future at some point, you know, if, if the demographic shifts. So what I try to make sure people understand and when we talk about this sorts of thing it's not something inherent to retirement planning where you need more young people or at least the same number of young people, you know, going through the pipeline in order to support the retirees that it has to do with the way the, the government system right now, it's called a pay go system where, you know, they, they skim off the top of the existing workers to pay the people right now who are retired. And then it really is like a Ponzi scheme and other like Paul Samuelson and Paul Krugman, both, referred to Social Security as a Ponzi scheme. They weren't saying, they were saying it like, ha isn't that funny? Like they were in favor of it, but they were just, you know, sort of being ironic. They weren't saying it to condemn it. And so everybody realizes there is something of that nature going on here. And that's why demographics matter so much. But that's only because of the particular structure of that system. If, if you had people paying, you know, like during, when you're a worker, if you invested in some fund or other, you know, productive assets mm-hmm. so that by the time you were 70, then you started living off of your accumulated savings, it wouldn't matter how many current workers there were. Cause you, in a sense would have already built up the capital goods that would then support you in your old age. So that, so I'm just, I'm pointing out that it, in a general, especially like in a freer society where people took care of their own retirement, like that was the default you you don't have these issues. It wouldn't matter. Oh my gosh, am I going to be able to retire? Do we have enough young people coming on the, into this mix? That wouldn't be an issue as much. It's the current system where it really is like a Ponzi scheme that that's so important. Well, if you told most Americans you can have an additional seven and a half percent, even if the employer didn't share, or an additional fifteen percent in your pay every month, but no Social Security benefits, no Medicare benefits. I mean, I think a lot of people would take that. I'd certainly take that. Um, I, I, you know, over a lifetime, I think you could you could certainly do much better than the rate of return. But what we need to do is we just need to get past this mentality, which is so entrenched. It's just poured in concrete 
especially amongst baby boomers, that it's my money. I'm just getting my money back. I paid into it. Well, first of all, your money's gone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and second of all, it's not that hard to trace out all of your contributions and adjust those for inflation and then say, well, okay, at what point have you taken out more in Social Security and Medicare benefits than you paid in? I mean, that is something we could calculate. And for most people, it's far more. Uh, you know, this is such a good example. You go back to the 1930s. FDR said, look, we literally need a, a, an old age pension for widows so they won't be out in the streets begging. Um, okay, well, that's pretty appealing to most people on an emotional level. And of course, at the time, every legislator who passed the Social Security Act is long gone, right? They're long in their grave. They never have to account for this. There were some, there were 30 odd workers for every potential retiree beneficiary at the time, (laughs) 30 something. Now there's like two and a half. Uh, And the, the life expectancy in America was you know, 63 or something, and, and Social Security kicked in at 65. So we haven't adjusted the age. We, we've we've reduced the workers paying in. So it's just such an example of, I mean, talk about kicking the can down the road. You can pass an enormously popular, let's face it, folks, let's not kid ourselves. Social Security is a popular program. Um, you can pass an enormously popular program and literally, in this case, offload the unpleasantness of paying for that program more than, you know, almost 100 years into the future. So that is the fatal allure of democracy, right? Uh, You get something now and you pay for it later. In this case, a century later, people you don't even know who didn't vote for you will pay for it. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how, I don't know how we get past the psychology of Social Security, because as I mentioned, it's a very popular program. And people fervently believe that because they paid into it, it's their money and it's not an entitlement. Right, and it's um, and that was part of the the political genius, you know, of FDR. And there is even some quote somewhere yes. where he's I don't know if you he says like this way, no damn politician can take away Social Security or something like that, where they knew like to not just make it oh for the people who really need it who didn't adequately save, they didn't do that because then you could roll it back. But no, it's, this is for everybody. Same thing with Medicare. This is once you become a senior, you get this. So once everybody gets it, now it's hard to, to get rid of it. And of course, you know, wealthy, older people who are retired are the most politically powerful group because, you know, they don't have jobs and they got leisure time. They can send emails, write letters to the editor, go yell at somebody at a town hall meeting, whereas mm-hmm. somebody who is, you know, 25 and raising two kids and working three jobs, like they don't have time to do that. Well, can we talk a little bit about the more human elements? And this is where, you know, an economic analysis uh, falls down a bit other than uh, the idea of subjectivity, right? That value is subjective, even when we're talking about the value of, let's say, an elderly life, someone who's no longer economically producing. Um, I know that there was this Substack article by a guy named Richard Hanania. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I hope I am. Richard Hanania, H-A-N-A-N-I-A, uh, about gerontocracy as a, a threat to Western civilization. Um, I read it and then I looked through his Twitter. He's kind of one of these Twitter intellectuals so take that for what you're worth for what it's worth but you know he did point out that we have generally uh in this question we've erred on the side of older people and and he he's quite open about using the term burdens and many of them are burdens and that some of them don't want to be burdens but they're just burdens and of course that's economic in in the sense that they're if they're if they're getting nursing care social security medicare they're not working they're they're taking more out of the system economically than they're putting in 
you know, maybe even what they put in throughout their lifetimes, or in most cases, actually more than what they put in throughout their lifetimes. But beyond that, they are a burden in that they're a drag on society. They're, if their kids or grandkids have to deal with them. I mean, he meant burden in the broader sense than just economics. So that's something we got to address. Well, right. And it's it, we, we talked about this offline, Jeff, that with this particular guy, he he goes out of his way to say real provocative things. And then if somebody gets mad, he goes, oh, I was just kidding. I was trolling. Ha ha. Gotcha. So who knows if this is supposed to be tongue in cheek, but let's take it at face. value. certainly there are people like this Japanese professor who are openly advocating this stuff and they mean it. So it's it's not a made up position or just a, a joke. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, it's. Look, there there are these trade-offs and cultural things. I mean, it's you know, it used to be that that the grandparents like would in certainly in certain cultures would would be living with people and they could watch the the young kids or whatever. And so there was a sharing of there was more of like passing down wisdom and things like that. So a lot of that, yeah, we we don't have it now in our modern American culture where you put them in a nursing home and forget about them and then really is just a gee, this is really hitting my my checking account a lot. Um, and in fact, I don't know if you saw this, Jeff, but the, this particular Japanese professor, apparently his mother had had some, you know, an aneurysm or something when she was young and he was lamenting how he has to pay, a, you know, a bunch of yen every month just to keep, keep her going. And mm. so like, like that was part of, you know, where his annoyance was coming from. So, um, there is that issue. I guess one thing to say as we, as we have this discussion, let's deport him to Japan. That's my advice. Well, he could be closer to his mom, maybe. I don't know where she is. Um, and so it's, look, you don't make those problems better by politicizing it. So I'll, I'll just put it that way, that a lot of people, when they see these things and they say, oh, yeah, this is why, you know, the, the family who's like having to pay out of pocket for, you know, grandpa at the nursing home and it's thousands of dollars a month in the nursing facility. Like, of course, they're going to want to, you know, they're looking at their kid and how we, you know, we got to send the kid to school or have grandpa just and he's not doing well anyway. He's grumpy. He's half senile. But we just had the government pay for it. Then those problems go away. We don't have to make these choices. And, and that, of course, isn't right that you don't make the trade offs disappear just by having the taxpayer pay for it. It just means now the family doesn't get to make that choice. It will be, quote, public policy. So that's, you know, that's a modest point just to say you're not solving that stuff by making it political, you're just actually taking the power away from the individual families. And now it's, you know, going to be some bureaucrat deciding, well, you know, he's, he's no longer worth it. Well, it'd be amazing. It'd be very difficult, but it would be amazing to attempt to do some sort of sociological study on the non-economic or excuse me, the sociological effects of, of social security and Medicare. In other words, how they've created more distance, literal geographic distance uh, among families, because it's possible for grandma to get mm -hmm. by, especially also like Medi-Cal, you know, those state level programs that pay for nursing care, um, how all these entitlement programs, which are basically welfare, uh, have made it possible for families to be physically separated by a much greater distance. But also how the fact that you're going to get Social Security and Medicare if you live long enough, skewed choices and distorted choices throughout your working life. Right. I mean, if you had known you, that you were on your own for retirement, and you weren't going to get that two grand. Maybe you would have bought the uh, the Ford Taurus and vacationed at Disney instead of buying the BMW and vacationing in Europe. Right. I mean, you know, there's there's so much here to unravel in terms of the distorted choices. But on the family level, I mean, look, first of all, without all these welfare entitlements, I think you'd have more multi-generational family living. You know, the, the elderly people should be contributing financially because they've had their lifetimes to accumulate. 
Um, and, and as you point out, I mean, not that long ago, people had children at 15, 16, 17. So the, di- the age difference between generations was much lower. So grandpa was 40. You know, grandpa could, could help and do things all day. And so could grandma and they could watch kids and provide childcare. There was more of an economic arrangement. Um, whereas now if people have their first kid at 40 or something, they're quite elderly when their grandkids come along and they're, they're very, you know, they're often nursing home 3000 miles away. So I, I, you know, this idea of, well, first of all, you know, a sub stacker is, is above writing above his pay grade when he starts calling people burdens. I mean that, you know, who's to say, um, and that sounds, if old people are selfish here, then he's an example of a selfish younger person who doesn't get it. Um, so, you know, you can't, whether someone's a burden or not um, is, is subjective. I mean, that's not something any, any single person can decide. And it's, and it's a bad way to be thinking about or making public policy. Now, uh, there's this related article that, that you and I uh, sent around by uh, Rahm Emanuel's brother. He was the former White House chief of staff. He was a super agent. And his brother is a physician named Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. And he wrote a pretty famous article in The Atlantic a few years ago. It's it's paywalled, but um, it's basically about how he only wants to live to 75. And that while we've radically expanded um, lifespans, what we haven't been able to do with our transhumanist grandiosity is increase the quality of life uh, beyond beyond a certain date. So sort of like Richard Hanani, he says, you know, after 75, it's very, very hard to contribute. So that's another loaded word like burden. I'm not sure what contribute means. I mean, some, sometimes just having grandma sit in the corner and tell stories might be all the contribution that a family needs. Um, so what do you make of, of uh, Ezekiel Emanuel and all of us checking out at 75 like Logan's Run? Except Logan's Run was 30, I think. Well, yeah. So, and another um, thing was that was it Midsummer? I forget the name of the movie. Uh, there, there was some horror movie where these people go over this plate, and and there the culture is that the old people go up and they just jump off the cliff when they reach a certain age. And oh, it's fine. It, it, it shocks you Westerners, but no, we do it over here, and you know, because this is our yeah. culture and our way. Um, so yeah, I I think this is just part of a of a broader trend that. that yeah, I mean, it's I'm, I'm not saying anything pr- too profound here. Just you know, dehumanizing people. Everything is becoming very commodified, and I know that might sound funny for an economist to be saying that, but I can understand the distinction between you know things that are in the marketplace and other things of you know human value. And uh, what's what's perverse about this though, just like under communism, they can talk about the classless society, but actually the inner circle and the mm-hmm. party, you know, we're driving around in limousines and stuff. That's what's going to happen here is the the people who are politically connected i mean they're working on extending human life and so for you know klaus schwab and all his buddies they're trying to do that stuff so this is i think more about telling the masses you know once you get to be 60 75 you really you know your time here is done and why don't you just make room for everybody else and that you you see in numerous arenas this mentality coming across and i think it's partly because they do see the writing on the wall and know mm-hmm. that this is going to be Un, you know, unsustainable in, in many ways, given the current system. And so let's just start warming people up to the fact that, you know, that they're, they're no longer useful once they reach a certain age. Well, and to be fair, there are plenty of healthy people over 75 who have plenty of dough. 
and who can still enjoy their retirement and go to Europe or do whatever they, they want to do. And we shouldn't be paying them Social Security if they have lots of dough, but nonetheless. Um, so, you know, it's not like everybody in their 80s and 90s is decrepit and, and incapable of enjoying life outside of, let's say, just a family setting with their grandchildren or something. That's not the case. But there's also a, a huge number of people in their 80s and 90s who are decrepit, who are not enjoying much of a quality of life. And the question becomes, you know, from both an economic and, and human perspective, how does a society deal with that? And I don't think we've got that figured out very well. Um, you know, I mentioned Logan's Run. People, I don't know if younger people have heard of that movie. I guess, would you call that a sci-fi movie, Bob? I mean, it, it, but, but basically yeah, I mean, there was so. this big sort of place where you went and, I, and you stepped onto this r- rotating wheel of some kind. I think you had to do that at 30. So they wanted to keep this young, beautiful society. And so that, w- that was the concept. And, and you can sort of get a glimpse of that mentality in, in uh, Ezekiel Emanuel's article. In other words, there's something transhumanist about controlling the circumstances of one's death. I still want to be reasonably uh, uh, cognizant of things. I still want to be reasonably physically healthy. I still want to you know, not have too much pain or loss of eyesight or hearing or mental uh, rundown or other infirmities. I don't want to go through a bunch of cancer treatments. I mean, that is to, you know, I mean, you can argue about degrees. That's playing God to a degree. I mean, you, I, you know, I suppose you could say a knee replacement's playing God or using antibiotics. All, you know, it's all playing God. But this strikes me as, you know, euthanasia, even the voluntary sort strikes me as as a as something different uh, in in kind, not just in degree. And look, I mean, as far as as far as uh, one's robustness in life, I mean, Logan, I, I look, Bob, I, you know, I peaked at twenty eight or thereabouts. <laughs> so if I'd been at Logan's Just run that's three years ago, right? If, right? If, if if Logan's run were, yeah, I'd be like Costanza going out on a high note. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, now I'm in my fifties. I'm not quite ready to pull at Ezekiel Emanuel just yet. So uh, I guess the question would be, like, let's go ask Ezekiel Emanuel on his uh, halfway through his seventy fourth year, mm-hmm. uh, whether he still holds that seventy five. But I I don't know how we as a society are going to deal with this aging population. But I do know that government has, has screwed this up and skewed the way we live. I, I think that's clear. Yeah, definitely. So again, not that this solves like the fundamental philosophical and ethical problems, but in terms of making some of these decisions easier and less abrasive, it, yeah, government intervention at all levels. I mean, I've written a lot of stuff on the economics of healthcare. If you just got rid of licensure you know got rid of the fda and you know that drug treatments and things didn't need to go through all these hoops and they've just maybe put a label on it say hey this this has not been approved by a government agency to take it your own risk i mean it it would drastically reduce the price of a lot of these treatments and so you see these ridiculous things of oh wow you know this person wants to get this new advanced uh drug therapy but it'll cost the taxpayer a hundred thousand dollars a year and so it's because of crazy things like that where you quote need death panels Right. Is, it, mm-hmm. is this, should we play the, the Paul Krugman clip? Right. That well, I but you? I mean, give us the context because yeah. the left so, was denying that such a thing could well, ever right, be. Right. So, you know, was it, I guess it was what Sarah Palin was the one who, who coined that phrase. That, yeah. So the oh, idea really? was, oh, we got to watch out for Obamacare socialized medicine because there's going to be death panels and government bureaucrats are going to decide who lives and dies. And the left was mocking that. And okay. all of these right wing scare tactics, no one's going to be doing that. Well, yeah, but of course there is going to, that, that has to happen. If the government is going to pay for people's 
medical care, especially as these new treatments become available and you can indefinitely extend lives, then at some point there's going to be decisions have to be made like, no, it's just not worth it to spend an additional $200,000 on this person who, you know, is, is perhaps comatose. And so, you know, we've got this clip where Paul Krugman, to his credit, was coming out and at least admitting that eventually. Mm. And so we can go ahead and play that clip. If they were going to do reality therapy, they should have said, okay, look, Medicare is going to have to decide what it's going to pay for. And at least for starters, it's going to have to decide which medical procedures are not effective at all and should not be paid for at all. In other words, it should have endorsed the panel that was part of the healthcare reform. If, if it's not even, if the commission isn't even brave enough to take on the death panels people, then it's doing no good at all. It's not educating the public. It's not telling people about the kinds of choices that need to be made. These are all well, what is going to happen? I mean, are you clear on where a compromise is going to be? It's got to be it's discussed to before the end of the year, no? No. Some years down the pike, we're going to get the real solution, which is going to be a combination of death panels and, and sales taxes. It's going to be that we're actually going to take Medicare under control, and we're going to have to get some additional revenue probably from a VAT. But it's not but on going to happen second, one thing about Paul Krugman is he, he never pays a price for being wrong or being a hypocrite. <laughs> I think we can safely say that. Yeah. So it's, again, that, so it's, you, you want to take that stuff out of that, the government, you know, the political arena. But also what I'm saying is it's the reason it's so expensive. It's not mm -hmm. just a, a matter of technology. It's because of government intervention that if we didn't have this you know cartel and medicine and so on all these other ways of limiting competition limiting supply prices would come down drastically people um as as you know jeff you know we we've got some of our friends who are doing just switching doctors over to cash payment system and there the prices just come down drastically just getting the third party payers out of the equation so if you did if you made healthcare like a business it wouldn't have these astronomical costs. And the, so that's, that's part of the, of the solution. And then, yeah, families could make their own decisions. People could even put in their will, you know, yeah, if, if I'm out and mm -hmm. I'm not responsive, then so-called pull the plug under these conditions. But the, the trade-offs would be a lot less stark if we didn't have government drastically inflating the, the cost. So th there's that element at the very least. Right. And death panel is just an extreme word for trade-offs. Right. I mean, we can accept trade-offs at the individual or family level, but it's going to be a little hard to accept them when they're being made by a, a third-party uh, health insurance bureaucrat or a third-party government bureaucrat. Right. I mean, that strikes me as as the, the the dividing line here. And we've all heard stories, or maybe we've even been involved in them in our own families, where you know you've got someone who's quite elderly, perhaps in their nineties, and then some some dramatic heart failure or other uh, problem occurs, which is to be expected at that age. And the last week of their life is spent uh, in a hospital bed and it costs $100,000, right? And, and they're barely conscious. Their family uh, has to rush to fly, to fly there and say goodbye. And there's just not, a, a, you know, you don't get a lot out of that $100,000 in that last week of life, but the, the, a, a lot of medical providers get paid. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, we, we have to get past that, but again, Medicare is a big part of that. Uh, we, we can't discount the extent to which Medicare, uh, distorts that. So I think we have to keep an eye on this and think about this. I mean, we talk a lot on this show about America's economic problems with respect to the dollar, with respect to debt and deficits. Uh, but, but here we've got a problem, which is very different, um, because it's demographic and, uh, God forbid if some of these other economic problems 
um, become acute or we have another situation just like 2007, 2008, or even worse than that, I think we're going to find uh, an awful lot more of that intergenerational living that I mentioned earlier in the show. So, Bob, I think we will provide a link to Rama, excuse me, Ezekiel, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel's really interesting article about checking out at 75. And, and obviously, he's sort of a left-wing progressive guy, but it's worth, uh, I think, reading it with an open mind. Also, Richard Hanania's uh, substack on the gerontocracy. And um, we'll be back next week with another show. So keep the ideas coming. Be sure to follow me and Bob and the Human Action Podcast uh, on Twitter. And I hope you enjoy the new intro from our engineer, Clay Barnett. Uh, we, uh, you copyright guys are going to love this. We pay a service called BMI to use music. So we switched up the music to a very underrated and often forgotten band from the early 2000s in Palo Alto, the Donnas, one of my favorite bands. So hope you like the new intro, and we'll be back with a, next, a new show next week. Thanks, Bob. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.